As Johnny said, we're continuing a series in 2 Samuel. So if you want to take a Bible, or you can just listen, but uh, we're going to read in chapter 9 here in just a moment. Do you know, I think one of the reasons that the history of of David, the, the rise and the reign of King David, is just such a good read is that it lets us have glimpses of so many of the people who shaped King David's life story. Other people besides, besides him, it, it brings them in. And I think we appreciate that, I know I do, because we know really that other people are one of the greatest influences in our life. Lots of things shape us, don't they? Circumstances, inbuilt preferences and dispositions, circumstances that are thrust upon us and things that we choose. But I think the effect of other people upon us has got to be one of the biggest things, one of the obvious factors that shape who we are as people. And if you take a moment and ask, who shaped me as a person, for good or otherwise? Well, who was that? How have they done that? How are you better? How is life harder because of others? And tonight we're going to look at three men, and I think it's safe to say that they're three of the lesser known uh, influences on David's life. And I, I have to admit that when I first got into this, I thought, oh, wow, these are, these are lesser known. There's one of them, I, I, when you named him, I couldn't have told you who he was. So if you don't recognize any of them, don't feel bad. But I think there's even a lesson in that because it's not only the, the Samuels and the Goliaths. It's not just the, the Sauls and the Jonathans who shape somebody. It's, it's the lesser known people. The people who aren't so easily noticed can change the course of someone else's personal history. As we look at these three, we can ask, well, how we'd like to try to be like them or maybe avoid being like them. And we can ask too, where would we find ourselves, as we look at these three men, where would we find ourselves among them when it comes to our own treatment of the Lord's anointed king? But if we ask, you know, we're, step, we're jumping into 2 Samuel, so where do they, where do they fit? Where, where, in, what's, what's their context? Well, two of the three of them appear in the time when David is establishing his reign, when he's on his way to, to really consolidating his throne. So that's a guy named Ziba and a guy named Machir. And if you want to disagree with me on the pronunciations, feel free to do that, and you can tell me how I got it wrong at the end. But they also feature prominently, along with the third, who's a guy named Shimei, during the time of David's exile, when he had to flee from his son's Absalom and his murderous attempt to take David's throne. So if we're there at 2 Samuel 9, we're introduced to Ziba and Machir, at least by reputation, And both of them have to do with someone named Mephibosheth, which is a difficult name to pronounce many times in a single evening, but we will do our best. So Mephibosheth fits in around two of these men. But as we turn to the word of God now in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? 
And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So now as we turn over to chapter 16, we jump ahead several years after David has welcomed Mephibosheth to the time when David had to retreat from Jerusalem in order to save his life. So we're going to meet Ziba again, and also a man named Shimei. Chapter 16 and verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys, saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he, that is Mephibosheth, said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Then we read on. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. 
Now concerning Ziba, how we read of first there, if we were to read, and we won't tonight, but if we were to read chapter 19, we would get to hear what David should have waited to hear before passing judgment on Mephibosheth, namely the other side of the story. You know, provided and, and how he provided the only evidence he could in his lame condition of not bathing himself, not cutting his beard, not attending to his feet, which were you know, sore and crippled. He, he didn't look after himself the entire time David was in exile, largely to be able to show to David, I was not for this. This is not mine. And I mean, as he probably could have, <laughs> as he said, you know, Ziba had the donkeys. I'm lame. How was I going to come to you? But that's another part of the story, and David did rush to judgment there, I think. But when, that's for another time. We get Ziba's side of the story, and we hear the abuse of Shimei. But just for the last couple of verses, let's look now at chapter 17. We meet Machir here in person, our third man. 17 and verse 27. This is still David on the run. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So three men that King David encountered at his lowest point. And they give us three very different ways of reacting to the Lord's anointed king. So let's think about them out of order, starting with Shimei, and then Ziba, and, and lastly, Machir. If only because I like to get the bad news out of the way first. But Shimei, his connection to David was, was through Saul. He was a relative. And his reaction when David was down and vulnerable was to curse him. Specifically, he took advantage of David's weariness and his weakness, and he rejoiced in his humiliation, rubbed his nose in it. He did it in a rather crude way. I mean, there, there's just nothing very sophisticated about throwing dirt and stones at somebody and cursing them and calling down evil of a pan, upon a man whose son was out to kill him. But what's going on here as we, as we watch David take this abuse? Well, I think first we have to say, and perhaps we've all experienced it to some extent, it's not easy to be kicked when you're down. David was taking an absolute verbal and emotional kicking from this guy who saw himself as totally justified in what he was saying. And you know, it's really hard in those circumstances not to give in to despair, not to just say what's it worth if, if they can get away with that. How did David manage not to? Well, first, he suspends judgment. He didn't give in to the temptation, so common to me, to immediately just retaliate. In doing that, in holding back from that, he, he also doesn't assume that he can see the whole picture. He's saying, There's, I'm gonna step back a little bit. He makes room for the Lord's judgment in that situation. He also makes it clear he doesn't think and act like Abishai and, and his brother Joab, who are all for, you know, unreflective retaliation. And, well, he was willing to just step aside and let there be a little time to see what would happen. 
Now, what he does later in the, first, in the second chapter of 1 Kings, that's for someone else to, to teach you on. That's um, a whole other story. But the second thing, I think, is that David is honestly open to the possibility that this was part of what was bound to happen because of his sin with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Part of the consequences of his sin. He knew he was guilty of that, even though he wasn't guilty of what Shimei was accusing him of. But I think thirdly, and most importantly, David casts himself on the providence and mercy of God. He trusts God and his all-seeing, all-knowing righteousness and God's ability to bring justice to this situation. What is my reaction? What is your reaction to injustice when you face it personally? When you're falsely accused, when, when someone just hits you with something and you know it's not right? Is it whatever, in whatever arena of life? But maybe especially if you've been in that circumstance when the person is just so assured of their rightness. They're so just stubbornly minded that they are in the right and they are, are justified in, what they're, in the abuse they're heaping on you. Do you know, increasing our trust in God and in his desire and his ability to bring about justice, it's one of, if I may say it this way, it's one of the challenges the Lord takes up in our training in making us like the Son of God. Do you remember the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge in Luke 19? The Lord addresses the question of suffering unjustly and he teaches us to keep asking the judge of all the earth to do right even when things look so unjust and to keep asking him to act in line with his righteous character. But the Lord ends with this. He says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a real question. Will he find faith on earth? And it's a real challenge to those following him, to his disciples. Because, you know, there's nothing quite like suffering injustice to make a person doubt the love and power of God. Have you noticed that? There's, if someone suffers an injustice, suddenly it's very hard to trust in God's love or in his power or both. It's why abuse is such a deep and dark hurt. Because you say, God, couldn't you have stopped that? But you know, as real as that fact is, there's, there's also nothing like a deepening understanding of the gospel and the gospel's insistence that God is the God of justice to strengthen our faith in God's love and in his power. If you read Romans 3 again, go back and just read the argumentation of Romans 3. Listen to it, to its arguments to convince us of God's righteousness and his justice. It gets to his love eventually in chapter 5, but first it's going to argue the case for the gospel that God is a God of justice. You'll know that, just to jump in at, at, at verse 22, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, God's justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel says that God always judges justly and he always saves justly. And because that's true, we can know with total certainty that he will deal with injustice in this world, even if it is not in our lifetime. It will not go unpunished, undealt with. But we can know as well that he can save us from the justice that we deserve and be just in the way he does it. And in this time of his life, David was learning a whole lot about God's justice and God's way of dealing with sin and coming to know more deeply what God is like. And as he came to know that, even as we see in this little snapshot, he's coming to trust God in his character. It's what the Lord takes on in our training as his own. But then we come to Ziba. He had been King Saul's servant, so we're connected to the former regime again. And his reaction when David was down and vulnerable was, well, to use him, to use David. He slandered another person, specifically. He, he preyed on David's wounded trust to kind of to ingratiate himself and, and to gain lands and gain security, gain independence, using that situation to, to, to just slander Mephibosheth and get what he could for himself and his family. Rich Mullins sings in one of his songs, there's people been friendly, but they'd never be your friends. Sometimes this has bent me to the ground. And what's going on here as we watch Ziba come in between David and Mephibosheth? Well, if someone hates and curses and throws stones, that's hard. But to be taken advantage of when you're weak and vulnerable is, a, is just a different kind of wound, a different level of feeling despised. And if that involves separating us from friends, it's a thousand times worse. Notice the emotional connection David had to Mephibosheth because of Jonathan. This was his best friend's son. And to be reconnected, finally, I've got a connection, a living connection to the man who meant more to me than anybody else. But now this, because of this accusation that came from Ziba about Mephibosheth, that loss of Jonathan would have been just reopened. Jonathan would have never done to me what his son's now doing to me. The wound of that. But was he right? Do you know the New Testament instructs us to test the spirits? That is to discern whether the words and the behavior we're seeing are, are coming with the blessing and under the control of God's Holy Spirit. Or whether the, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience is giving the motivation, even the, the power to those who are influencing us personally or the church as a whole, or to test those things. So when we face a person who might divide God's people, 
one simple test we can make is, is to ask this. Is this person who is coming over and, and being on my side the way you know, Ziba was to David, are they trying to do that in a way that makes me think less of someone else or even to be suspicious of someone else? Are they making themselves look good while driving someone else down, driving a wedge between me and someone else that I trust? Well, which spirit is known to use those kinds of tactics? The accuser, the adversary, the one who used Judas to sell Christ, who tries to come between Christ and his people and accuse and the same one who lied to Adam and Eve in order to get them to believe the lie that God didn't really want their best, so they wouldn't trust him anymore. Such a spirit in a person is many things, but holy is not one of them. Now granted, there, there are times, let me make it clear, there are times when we need to be suspicious of truly dangerous people. People can be predatory. And they need to be dealt with through the proper steps. I'm, I'm not talking about those situations. But about the kind of behavior that isn't so much interested in the truth of the matter as in how I can gain an advantage. Ziba did not respect Mephibosheth, clearly. But he didn't really respect David either. His self-interest undermined the positive things he, he did, that the food he brought, the goods that he brought in the wilderness, because they were done at the cost of another person and their reputation for the sake of building his own family legacy. Fifteen sons, that's a lot of people to think about down the road, right? I need to get something for them. I need to, I need to think ahead, and this is an opportunity, and I don't want to miss it. All these servants that I had, and we've all now, be, as the text specifically says, we all be, they've all become the servants of Mephibosheth. That probably chafed a bit. But the legacy he actually gained, the one he's left with in Scripture, isn't very flattering. Because this, the way we're talking about him now, is how we're left to think about him. His family doesn't feature further in Scripture. The only place his name lives on is here in this negative light. His family's financial security was more valuable to him, apparently, than true loyalty to the Lord's anointed king. So we can look harshly at him, but can I ask, what will your legacy be? What will my legacy be? It's something that scripture gets us to think about, isn't it? If we looked at 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about his life's work and he uses that analogy of a building. And he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Legacy is a serious question to ask about in our own lives. And Ziba's choices leave us with questions. 
what will remain of what I've built into my life and just as importantly, into the lives of others? Will my family have a spiritual legacy or merely a financial one? But now, at last, thankfully, we come to a bright spot. We come to Mac here. We don't know a lot about him. We're not told a huge amount, but he had been Saul's grandson's protector when Saul and Jonathan were killed and the rest of the family had to run for their lives. So I think it's at least we know that he was willing to help royalty on the run. That's clear. And he does help David. But his connection with Mephibosheth and Jonathan and Saul, it might have led him to move against David, to side with someone, anybody but David. But he didn't. He blessed David by what he brought to him. Specifically, he, he showed the kind of loyal friendship that he had seen David show to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan. He had to have seen that, to have the king call his, this, this lame grandson of Saul, Jonathan's son, and to take him and set him right with his own sons in the, in the palace. And perhaps Machir wanted in a king what he found in David, someone who treated the down and out like human beings and even lifted them up. But what we know for sure is, is how he helped. And that was by bringing food and supplies. I mentioned in the interview that in December I was in Jordan and, and, and they, when we were there one day, they took us down to the, the Jordan Valley. And um, I hope they're not listening, but it's not much to look at. It is, it is desolate. I mean, there's a kind of a, a, a stark beauty about it, but it would not be the, one, be the place you'd take lots of people on a camping trip and not have much for supplies. It's, it's, it's truly wilderness. And to have, be in that position of vulnerability. Do you know, there's nothing so good as the help of someone who doesn't have to help and does so even if they might have had some reason for not wanting to. Notice what Mac here does. Notice the, the, what we read there of the, the specifics and the thoughtfulness of it. They brought beds and dishes as well as the food. Think of the scale of the expense of it, the number of people. It wasn't just a few, it wasn't a hunting party out. This was, this was, this was the royal court and the, and the army and there was a huge amount of expense involved here. And there were risks. If Absalom won, it was not insignificant to have helped David. And they knew that. But Machir and friends, they chose to stand with the one who was the Lord's anointed in the time when he was on the run when he was rejected. Do you know, there is something about hospitality that this speaks to. And I think, in a way, that the hospitality that happens among Christians is, is, is some, they're some of the unsung heroics of, the ch of church life. But we should celebrate it. And if it's not something you are engaged in to, to show hospitality to people, can I say you're missing out? Now, I'm not very good at it. I just married well in that respect. I've, I mean, to, to, if, if, if I had 20 people to feed, I would be in a blind panic. But my wife sort of takes it in her stride and says, right, okay, go to the shop, you know? And that's, my, that's what I bring to the, the, the deal. But it's, it's a beautiful thing to be involved in. And can I say that we need personal 
interaction that hospitality brings as much as ever and maybe more as, as there are so many things to compete with personal interaction of people. The world of today competes with that. People face loneliness, overwhelming situations in life, mental health challenges, maybe being in a Christian in a family that, that isn't Christian. There's a, there's, there is a need, there are all sorts of reasons for a need for connection to other people. It's part of being human and it's part of being in the body of Christ. Do you know, I think the world of tomorrow and the, maybe like, I mean, literally tomorrow, it's coming so fast, with all of the, the highly immersive forms of entertainment and information gathering that, that are coming upon us faster than we know, are going to make it necessary for us to choose consciously to interact with each other and to bring people into our lives rather than just kind of coming into things, going out and all living in our little own, you know, caves. We will need to decide to do that. I get laughed at it absolutely for the illustration I'm about to use, but that's okay. Um, I am, uh, it's just because I, I think I use it too much, but I'm an unapologetic fan of Tolkien. I love The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But you know, if you haven't read it for it, and I don't mean the movies, I'm not get into that, but The Hobbit and the book, it's a story of a journey really punctuated by lots of rest times in the homes of strangers. As the, the, the party there becomes guests in the homes of people, uh, and you think of Tom Bombadil's house and Rivendell, the last homely house, and, and you, know, you have people like Bjorn and this crazy cows and bees and things that are going on, but they find that there is shelter and there is sustenance and there is safety at different steps on this treacherous journey. And it's a tremendous picture of what life can be like when people show true hospitality and open up their homes. You know, in the even more spectacular realm of the real world, to serve someone through hospitality is, is to serve the Lord Jesus himself. Remember what he said, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you even a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will no, by no means lose his reward. Or he says in Luke 16, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Think of the homes open to Christ when he was here on earth, the one who had no home of his own, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, of Peter's wife's mother, of the home where the upper room was and that the last supper was celebrated. All of these were places that allowed the Lord Jesus to, to do his work that changed people's lives and destinies. Is that how we view whatever kind of dwelling it is that we call home? Now, not everyone is in a position, I appreciate that, to open up their home to the same extent. Some provide hospitality and have a hand in that within a, a church building or join with others to provide meals, as Mackier did, actually. There were two other guys, Shobi and Barzillai, pooled resources together. Sometimes I think it's a matter of letting the Lord have the little that we have and being open to that, like, like the little boy did with his lunch, 
and to see what he will do with it. Notice though that, you know, in that, in that time when the Lord fed the 5,000, when he wanted to feed, 5, 000, to feed these thousands of people, he first asked others what, what they had to contribute before he began to work. That's tremendous humility. It, it's as if he kind of showed his empty lunchbox and said, does anybody else have anything here? Before getting his disciples to expose how little they had. That's tremendous humility. But we should never stop with the question, what am I capable of providing? Instead, we need to, to, to see the need of others clearly and, and then ask, Lord, how might you want what I, little I have to contribute to your answer to this? Because that hospitality, that kind of looking after people's needs, providing a table in the wilderness, literally as Macir did, to provide a safe place on the journey through life, to provide comfort and help, whether that's in your home or across a coffee shop table, to open yourself and your life to other people. I can tell you that my life is changed for the better because of the people who have done that for me. And I would not be able to, literally would not be able to stand before you, even as a believer, if it were not for the way people opened up their hearts and their homes to me at different points in my life. David would not be where he eventually was, back on the throne, if Machir had not come in and provided the very necessary things of life. And that hospitality, that stands in contrast to, to that direct antagonism of Shimei and and the false pretense kind of help of, of Ziba. And it had to bring a measure of healing to David's soul in that moment. Even as for many people, I think, who are hurt in the world or even hurt by other Christians, Christ-like love and hospitality can bring healing. Because Christ is himself always a better host a more faithful friend than even the best of his servants. Greater love, he says, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says to those same disciples in the next breath, and you are my friends. If you do what I command you, you are my friends. So these three men, Shimei, Ziba, and Machir, they make us ask not just who has shaped our lives, but whose lives are we shaping? But also, as I've been hinting, they also give us three ways of responding to God's anointed king. It's no big stretch to my mind to see in them three possible reactions to God's greater, to David's greater son, the son of God, the true anointed king, the king of kings. And maybe because you're here in this building, you're not somebody who's throwing stones and dirt, as it were, and... and and happy to see that Jesus' name is used as a curse word by so many. Maybe that's not you. Or maybe since you're here tonight, you're, and you're, if you have been that way, you're beginning to think better of that approach and wondering if there's, there's more to him than you'd believed before. I hope so, if that's you. But as much as I, I don't want to encourage that reaction to Christ, I think it's probably easier to see the wrongness of it and repent of it than to be a kind of Ziba kind of character. Because if you're just really connected to Christ because of what you can get out of him and using him in that sense, 
wanting him to provide you with the things that you can spend on yourself now? In other words, you see him as a safe bet in life's uncertainties? Then can I please warn you against having that kind of transactional approach to the Son of God? Because in Matthew 25, he's very clear himself that at the judgment there will be plenty of people who did things for God and even in the name of Christ. But the problem is they never really had a relationship with him. They never came to him as the only one who could deal with their guilt before God and their loss. It'll be eternal. And if you feel that the reason God should know you is because of what you've done for him and not because of what his son has done for you, then please do look again at the gospel, at his gospel. Because if you do, you'll find that God's way is to receive all who come to him. But we must come his way. And do you know when we do, when we do come we find that he not only receives us, but he also allows us the immense privilege of receiving him, even of, dare I say, showing him hospitality. We can give him a home away from home in a time when he's rejected by most people. Sometimes when he's even found to be standing outside the door of a church, knocking to come in like he is in Revelation 3. Because that's a very personal thing he says there. If anyone will, will hear, because he's standing outside the door of a church, knocking to come in. He said, come and let me in. And if you do, I'll come in and we will have true fellowship together. To give him a welcome home and find that, as Ephesians 3 tells us, Christ wants to settle down and be at home in our very hearts, right at the center of who we are. So it comes down finally to those three. Where do we find ourselves in that? As someone who's rejecting him completely? As someone who's using him? Or someone who has welcomed him, but maybe in some ways needs to open the door again to hear him knocking, to say, Lord, I've not been letting you deal with the things in my heart. I'm slipping into Ziba mode. And you know he wants to come in and deal with it again. So may he speak to us clearly and show us where we stand before him and may we have the joy of welcoming him at whatever level we need to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that the events of thousands of years ago still bring us face to face with the realities in our own lives now. Help us to see the truth of what you're saying to each one of us here tonight. Help us to have that joy of knowing the one who wants to know us intimately and wants to have us know our belonging and our, our place secure with you. To grow in our trust even when injustice comes. To know you as the God of love and justice and true, unfailing, steadfast, loyal friendship. We thank you that that is what you are, and we ask your help to know that more deeply tonight. In the Savior's name, amen.